As we come to uh, our message this morning, please turn to the very same psalm that we just sang, and uh, we are going to uh, look in more depth at Psalm 2, which is a psalm for the times, a psalm for the times in which we live. We have all been impressed in recent years by how our society, our culture, our government, all aspects around us seem to be deteriorating, seem to be falling more and more into chaos, discord, uh, uh, authoritarian uh, dictates coming down, and an overwhelming uh, rebellion against the moral teachings of God's word. Well, this should not surprise us, actually. No one should be surprised, because the scriptures have said this. And the psalm that we're going to study today is a psalm that depicts this precise uh, uh, situation that we find ourselves in, and also tells us what's going on behind the scenes and what we should do in response as well. So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here we end the reading of God's word. A couple of things about this psalm. You'll notice as we're reading, there are actually four segments, each one three verses long. Psalm is 12 verses. It's divided evenly into four different segments, each of three verses. And there are four persons or personages uh, that are the main focus of each section. Uh, of this psalm. The first is uh, the rage of nations and the rebellion of kings, and the kings of the earth are the focal point of that psalm, uh, we, or that section of the psalm, and we hear them speaking. We hear them speaking against the Lord. The second section, from verse 7 through 9, the Lord's response. What does the Lord think about these kings who are who are rising up against him, and the Lord himself speaks, and actually the Lord laughs. More on that later. This third section is actually the son speaking 
I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, that is God, the Lord said to me, the anointed one. So it is actually the son speaking in that third section of the psalm. And finally, the fourth section. There's no one person there that is named or envisioned. But as we unfold this psalm, this is the message that is spoken to the kings of the earth and to the nations. But they are not the ones speaking. I'll tell you who is speaking this message when we get to it in the course of the sermon. But it is a warning and an invitation to the nations of the earth and the kings of the earth. You might have also picked up that this is a psalm that is focused, it's, it's a psalm that we call a messianic psalm. It actually has that word in it, the anointed one or the Messiah is named in this psalm and identified as the Son of God. But it is also a psalm that is closely associated with that type of, of literature that we find in the Bible that we sometimes call apocalyptic literature. And that is the, the books of the Bible and sections of other books that focus on the revealing, that's the word apocalypse or apocalypto in, in the Greek, uh, the revealing of the Son of God in his full mediatorial glory, the fullness of his, uh, of his kingship, of his priesthood, and of his role as prophet, particularly in this psalm and in the book of Revelation, we find the revealing of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. In many ways, the book of Revelation is itself an extended commentary on this psalm. Or you could put it around the other way and say the psalm is a condensed form of the book of Revelation. I want to point something out before, again before we get it. We're still in the introduction. Uh, there is a, a part of the psalm that says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage. Uh, you will claim the nations for your own possession. And there's a beautiful part of the book of Revelation where, uh, and this is where George Friedrich Handel uh, got the, uh, uh, took words that were given to him by a friend, uh, focused on the, on the, the, the Messiah. And it's where he, he found the words for his wonderful uh, hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Lord omnipotent reigns. But in the middle of that hallelujah chorus, there's this passage. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ and of his God. Or the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And where did, where did that come from? Well, it actually first appears right here in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your heritage. And the land, the distant lands, all the nations of the earth will be your possession. Uh, the fulfillment of that, that victorious song in the Revelation uh, of giving praise to God and glory to God for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, his Messiah, his anointed one. Well, you can see the parallels. And again, I would encourage you to use Psalm 2 in a way as your, a, an opening door into the other literature of the Bible that deals with the ultimate victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now back to the psalm. Okay, the introduction is over now. By the way, I have to tell you just a bit. 
side note here. When I was many, many years younger, I was preaching one of my first sermons in a church. Uh, the pastor had, had been called out of town on short notice, and I was in seminary still, and so they asked me if I could fill in. Well, I developed this wonderfully complex outline, and my introduction was over 30 minutes long. The president of the seminary attended our church, and he had been coming back from a trip and got in late, came to worship late. Actually, during the sermon, he walked in, and uh, afterwards he, he said, I'd like you to come visit me in my office tomorrow. I want to talk to you about your sermon today. Well, I went and visited him and said, you know, you had wonderful content, but you need to get a grip on the time. Uh, 30-minute introduction just does not work. The first section of the psalm, the rage of nations and the rebellion of kings. There's an opening question. Why? Why are the nations in a rage? And why are the kings conspiring together and setting themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one, the one that he will set on his throne? Why are they doing this? I'm sure that question has arisen in our own minds as we see what I mentioned before, the, the degraded condition of our culture, our society, our kings, our presidents, our governors, our, so forth, almost gleefully rejecting the moral truths of God's word and charting different courses. Why are they doing this? Why are they raging against the Lord? And let us not, let us not think that this is just a political contest between two different philosophies of government, two different uh, political parties, two different ways of thinking. This ultimately in this psalm puts this contest, this disagreement, this battle in its ultimate form. That is, it is a war against God. There's a good rule of thumb to thinking through these issues. We kind of touched on it a little bit in our prayer of confession as well. Brothers and sisters, it's always about God. It's not about us. We are on the periphery. God is the center. The triune God is always the center of the scripture and the center of our attention. And he, and, and, Understanding that, understanding that God is the center of all things, helps us sort through the issues that we face in life. It's when we make ourselves our center, or our party, or our, even our nation the center of everything, that we go off track, and we get ourselves mired in all kinds of crazy things going on, and destructive things. Why are the nations in a rage? And why are the leaders of these nations gathering together to take a stand against God? Well, ultimately, it is because they do not recognize. They do not want to recognize God. 
They do not want to recognize him. In the words of the psalm, as they, as they speak, the kings set themselves, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying. This is where they speak. And this is where we find out what's really in their hearts. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We do not want God. We do not want to acknowledge the Lord. We do not want to acknowledge an authority that is higher than us. We do not want to be bound by the moral teachings that come from God himself and that are a reflection of his own righteous nature. We do not want this, and we are going to cast their their bonds away and break their bonds and their cords that bind us, that restrict us. We are going to do what we want to do, what we think best. By the way, this has never worked out well in human history. It has never worked out well. When every man does what is right in his own eyes, that's not a compliment. That's not a good thing. But they reject God. They reject his word. They reject the commandments that God has given. They reject what we were talking about earlier, that first use, that civil use of the law. Instead of following and obeying God's law, they become a law to themselves. The book of Romans begins with Paul. uh, In that first chapter, he talks about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, the righteousness of God that is being revealed against those who do not want to retain God in their thinking. And that's really a description that goes right along with Psalm 2. They do not want to maintain the knowledge of God in their thinking. And what does God do? He gives them up. Psalm uh, Romans 1, 24 through 28 has a passage there where in three different parts of that passage, those four verses from verse 24 through verse 28, Romans 1, Paul writes, he gave them up to... He gave them up to. He gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind. Three times Paul writes that. And it all begins when they do not want to retain or acknowledge God in their thinking. That's a description. That's a description of our culture right now. It's a description of where we are, where we celebrate ungodliness. We celebrate rebellion. We celebrate godlessness. And we exalt those who do wickedly and promote wickedness. Paul says in another passage that there is a sin that even the Gentiles don't like to talk about this. Well, we're way beyond that now. We put up flags in celebration of our rebellion. God has given them over to a debased mind, dishonorable passions, and impurity and lust of the heart. That's really, if you want an answer to why, why are the nations raging? It's there because they do not want to acknowledge God. 
we are way beyond that debate where we can say, well, America was a Christian nation, and we ought to, be, we ought to recapture our Christian heritage. Brothers and sisters, wake up and smell the manure. We're way beyond that. We are way beyond that. There's a little hint in this passage, in this section of what is to come. The, the psalmist says, why do they imagine a vain thing? Or why do they plot in vain? Why do they plot in vain? You see, already we're getting a little foreshadowing that all of this anger, this wrath of the nations is empty. That's what vain means. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's to no purpose. It will not accomplish what they think it will. It is a vain thing. And that brings us to the second part of the psalm, the second verse, if you will, where the Lord reacts and laughs in the face of this rebellion, in the face of the wrath of nations and the rebellion of kings. What is the Lord's response? The Lord laughs. The Lord laughs. He who sits in the heavens. You see, these are the kings of the earth. And they are bound to the earth. And they can reach no further than the earth. But the one who is enthroned in heaven. And by the way, if you want another tie into the book of Revelation, look at chapters 4 and 5, which is a scene of the heavenly throne room. He who sits in the heavens. What does he do? He's so afraid because the nations are, are they're coming after us. They're rejecting me. Oh, no, what can I do? No, he laughs. He laughs. The book of Isaiah has a, a similar statement here. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, there's a statement that says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. By the way, that's saying they don't even make a difference. The dust on the scale does not affect the weight of the thing you're weighing. It's so slight, it's so small, it's inconsequential. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. There is a, a, a ridiculous scene here. The kings of the earth, like a petulant little child, standing there in defiance of the Lord who sits in the heavens. I don't want you. I don't like you. No, I'm not going to obey your laws. Ha! It's ridiculous. I, I actually went through this with, my, with a two-year-old daughter. You know the two-year-olds. They, they begin and, and they learn the word no. And also a little attitude starts coming out. So I remember one day I was trying to instruct my daughter in the way that she should go. And she stood there. And I'm 6'4". Well, I used to be 6'4". She's like a foot and a half and change. And she puts her hands on her hips and she looks up at me and she says, No! I laughed. I couldn't help myself. I just laughed. Because it's a ridiculous scene. It's a ridiculous scene. Really? And that's 
what the psalmist is saying too, that all the nations with their armies and all of their power and all of their authority and all of their wealth standing up to God, it's vain, it's empty, it's to no good purpose, and the Lord laughs from heaven. But behind the laughter, there's also wrath. It's not laughing at a good joke. It's laughing because of the irony, the terrible irony of the situation. And after that laugh fades, comes wrath and terror. The Lord laughs, yet behind the laugh there is a terrible wrath. Because God then goes on to say, As for me, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, God is saying this. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and then he gives his command, his, his statement. While the kings are casting aside his cords and breaking his bonds, the Lord says, no, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king. I have established a king, and I have established his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, that's where you and I come in. The visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ is, at this particular time in history, the visible manifestation of his kingdom. You are here, and we have a king, a lord, a ruler over the church named Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. And you and I are here today because of this decree. I have set my king, which also implies I have established my kingdom. You and I are part of that kingdom. You and I are part of that kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has established as king. I have set my king on Zion. No matter what the nations say, they will ultimately have to bow. The scripture is clear that at some point every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But there's two ways you get there. You will either, because the Holy Spirit has come to your heart, and has opened your eyes as to your true state before God, and has given you the gifts of repentance and faith, you will call upon the name of the Lord and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and call on him to save you and to be your Lord and Savior. You will do it that way, or you will do it when the Lord Jesus Christ stands over you as conquering king, putting his foot on your neck as you lay in the dust defeated and under his judgment. But either way, you will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And that brings us to the third verse here. And the, the speaker in this third verse is not the nations, it's not the kings, it's not even the Lord, the Father. It is the Son who now speaks. As that, as that third verse begins, I will tell of the decree. Now, what's a decree? It's a, a royal edict. It has authority behind it. It has the authority of the throne behind it. 
in, in our theological terminology, when we talk about the decree of God, we're talking about his all-encompassing plan by which he directs every aspect of the existence of all things. And he does it for his own glory. Whether it is the outworking of providence or it is the outworking of creation, all things are encompassed in that decree, that absolute decree of the Lord. In this instance, I think uh, the Son is speaking mainly of a royal decree or the decree of the Father, uh, but it, is, it certainly grows out of that eternal and absolute decree that we describe in those theological terms. And here's what the decree is. The Lord, that is, the, the, in, this, in, in the context here, the Father, Jehovah, said to me, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I'm going to stop there because Paul actually quotes this in the book of Acts as he's speaking to people and bringing the gospel to people. And he's talking about Christ and he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And he quotes this psalm, this statement from Psalm 2 as proof of the resurrection or at least of the significance of the resurrection. The resurrection is, the, is in, as we put these passages together, the resurrection of Christ becomes the fulfillment of this decree. I have be, this day I have begotten you. In the beginning of the first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, according to his human lineage, was descended from David, but according to his divine nature, was testified to by the Holy Spirit, raising him from the dead. And there you have that linkage of the resurrection and the declaration that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. The decree goes on. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The very nations that are rising up in rebellion are destined to be the possession of Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very kings that rise up and shake their fists in God's face, we will not have you rule over us, are the very kings that will one day bow down in the dust and acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. So, so let me just say something else. So when you look at the insanity of our day and age, are you scared? Oh, on one level, we should be definitely concerned and worried. It's going to affect our families. It's affecting us. It's affecting a lot of aspects of our lives, and it will probably get worse before it gets better, if it does get better. I'm not particularly optimistic about this state of affairs. But I am optimistic when I look at this. And I see that in spite of what we see going around on around us, the Lord's decree 
has been made. His proclamation will endure. The king's will not endure. But the Lord's decree will always endure. And the Lord's Messiah has been set on the hill, on, on the throne. And the Lord's Messiah is declared to be the risen Son of God. He has already conquered death. And death is the final and greatest enemy. He has already conquered that. How will he not also conquer the rebellion of kings if he has already conquered death? You see, when I think of short-term things, no, I'm not particularly optimistic. When I think of longer term and I look at what the scripture teaches, then I am filled with courage and I am filled with hope and rejoicing because I know that my Redeemer lives. And though this body falls into the grave and dissolves into its elements, yet in my flesh I will see God. If he has risen from the dead, then I too shall be raised from the dead with him and in him. If he is victorious over sin, then I too in him will be victorious over sin. If he reigns over the nations, according to Revelation chapter 2, that he who overcomes will sit with him on his throne and be given a rod of iron to rule the nations. It's in the Bible. And therefore, I am not afraid. I am not afraid. Neither should you be afraid. But we should be filled with courage. The Lord has made his decree. The nations of the earth will be given to him as a heritage. He will break them with a rod of iron. That's one of the, uh, it's a, a phrase that is quoted several times uh, in Scripture, mainly in the book of Revelation. Another tie in there. And now we get to the fourth. The final passage. And I said, we, it's not named here who is actually speaking in this final uh, verse of Psalm 2. The speaker is not named. So let me give you what I think is the best answer. It's you and me. It's the church. It's part of the Great Commission. I know you probably haven't thought of it in that way. But it's part of making disciples is to bring people to acknowledge the truth of God, the truth of Christ and who he is, and to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Who is it who says this? Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is going to give that message to the kings of the earth unless the church does? You and I are part of a church that is an ambassador of Christ. And just as Paul would say also that I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I beseech you, I beseech you, be reconciled to God. And we can say that to individuals and we can say that to nations as well. 
Now, there's been a long-standing debate, especially in, in Presbyterian churches, kind of goes back to the Civil War days. There's been a, a view that kind of rose up in the church that basically said the church should not speak to civil issues. The, the church is a spiritual entity. It should concern itself with spiritual things. It should not get involved with any of the of the issues of the day that uh, affect our government or affect our, our culture. The church just should stay with spiritual things. The problem I have with you is that everything at some level is spiritual. Everything at some level has spiritual implications and moral implications. Well, the other side of that argument said, no, the church should be involved in social activities. It should be involved in governmental issues. It should be making statements and, and doing this and that and trying to bring about a better world. I don't think the church should be making pronouncements on everything. But when the authority of God, when the role of Jesus Christ... When the moral teachings of Scripture are at stake, I think the church has a responsibility as the church. Individually, everyone should be doing this, but as the church, it should speak to these issues that are involved in the rebellion of kings against God. And our message should not necessarily be that you should vote for this bill in Congress because of this. It should be this. This is the message. Be wise, kings. Be warned about the wrath and the judgment of God that is about to fall on you if you continue in your rebellion. Rulers of the earth, be warned, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Oh, but, but, but wait, Pastor Allen, we live in America. We have this, this concept of the separation of church and state. We should, we should just mind our own business and let the state do what it wants to do, the church wants it to do, and we're separate. By the way, Jesus is king and priest. Read Psalm 110. In Christ, there is no separation. He is ruler over all. Now, I'm not saying we need to do away with that. Actually, the church has been very blessed because of that. It's not actually, it's not in the Constitution called separation of church and state. But it is a prohibition of the government to establish a particular denomination as a state church. That's what's called the establishment of religion. And it is a prohibition of government from interfering with the practice of religion. And the church has flourished under that. But one day... Both the civil function and the religious function are joined together in one person. That's Jesus Christ. And it is good for the church to remind the kings of the earth that that day is coming. It is good for us to remind them, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. <laughs> As if to get even more honest. Here's what the church ought to be saying to the rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. The sun that has been set on Zion's hill and set by divine decree on the throne of God. That sun who will rule over the nations of the earth as his own possession. 
not just an elected office, but they belong to him. They are his possession. That son, kings of the earth, presidents, governors, senators, representatives, mayors, kiss the son. Give your allegiance and your true affection and devotion and worship to the Son. Someday you will. It is best to do it now. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You can continue in your rebellion, but you will only kindle his wrath, or you can find your refuge in him and be blessed by him. What will it be, kings of the earth? What will it be, Mr. President? Oh, you're getting a little too close to home now, Pastor Helen. What will it be, Governor? Will you continue in rebellion and experience the wrath of the sun that is quickly kindled against the wicked? Or will you bow the knee and kiss the sun and experience his blessing? This is the message the church ought to be giving. Eh, maybe not meddling in every issue that comes along but declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ in its fullness. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. The church is the speaker in this fourth paragraph. So we have the kings of the earth. We have God's reaction. We have the decree spoken, by the, spoken to the Son and relayed to us by the Son. And we have the message that the church ought to speak to the kings and the nations of the earth. None of this is in doubt. None of this should surprise us. So take courage, brothers and sisters. A, a former president used to say, as he was pronouncing his agendas and defending his views, he said, we are on the right side of history. And his view was that history is going to go along this, this course and we are going to make progress toward a utopian society. We are going to make progress to that perfectly just and righteous society envisioned by progressives, envisioned by certain people, and we will make it happen and we are on the right side of history. No, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ holds the vectors of history in his own hand. If you want to be on the right side of history, be firmly in the grip of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Kiss the sun. Not just kings of the earth, but every one of you here. Demonstrate and show and live as the servant of the living Christ who died for us and is risen for us 
ascended into heaven for us, makes intercession for the saints for us right now, and will come again for us and draw us into the great feast on that great day when he sees and is united with his church and establishes his messianic reign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we look at the world, if we look at the events around us, we might grow fearful, we might grow, we might become doubtful. And yet, you teach us in your word that we should not be afraid. You teach us in your word that we have a task to perform in this world. In spite of what we see around us, we are to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, and we are to call people to kiss the Son, even those in authority over us. It is our task to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us be faithful and be wise in the way we pursue that task, but be faithful in announcing the reign of Jesus Christ. For indeed, even as the angels proclaim, the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen.